0: Hey, everybody. I wanted to remind you about size. It's the workout from Beachbody. I mentioned it way back in the Rage Yoga episode with Lindsay Astasi back in June, and I'm still doing this workout, and I gotta tell you, I'm starting to get some abs. It's fantastic. I love it, and I feel like Beyonce. I'm like in a music video every time I do one of these workouts. It's incredible. Now, they have a new deal for NOL listeners. You can get four free bonuses and two free gifts, plus a 30 day money back guarantee when you purchase size through my website. So go to LadyFoxEntertainment.com, resources page, click on size. Check it out. I'm telling you, this workout is so much fun. And, uh, you know, it ties in with the theme of health and wellness. So onto the show with Dr. Gregory Vipont. Do you like to learn about random, wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should. And welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge, and if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. Today, I have a special one for you. I am with Dr. Gregory Vipond, a facial plastic surgeon, and Dr. Vipond is going to share information on how to choose a surgeon, whether you have to or not, the current trends and what most people are having done right now. Oh, and finally, what you need to know about those at-home gadgets on the market. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Dr. Vipong. He's board certified by the American Board of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. He's board certified by the American Board of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, fellowship trained, sanctioned by the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. He's a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Canada, and he has an extension of clinical and academic background in both facial plastic and head and neck surgery. Dr. Vipond provides his patients with expertise and understanding in the field of cosmetic and reconstructive surgery of the face, nose, and eyes. And his approach is to restore symmetry and balance to the face, which can lead to well-being. Welcome, Dr. Vipond.
1: Thank you for having me, Michelle.
0: Your website, by the way, is vipfacialartistry.com, correct?
1: That or also just drvipond, D-R-V-I-P-O-N-D dot com.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you with us on Nothing Off Limits.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Tell me about your journey. You know, how did you become a doctor? What made you want to be one?
1: Well, it's uh, interesting. I was kind of a rough and tumble kid growing up, played a lot of contact sports and was always either breaking something or or acquiring stitches. So I I didn't have any relatives that were doctors, um, but I was seeing my family doctor, my orthopedic surgeon, and uh, I just sort of, I liked, you know, the kind of the care they gave me, the, the way they explained things, so I always thought, you know, I'd be a nice field to go into, to be able to help people, and uh, I was pretty good at science, so it seemed like it matched, so that's how I got it uh, kind of directed towards medicine, and I ended up uh, leaving Canada after uh, doing my pre-medical undergraduate degree there, and uh came to New York City, did medical school at Columbia University, where I initially thought I wanted to be a brain surgeon, and then actually got uh, directed towards facial plastic surgery and went into head and neck surgery as a residency.
0: Wow. So wait, so you wanted to be a brain surgeon. Was that a result of all the rough and tumble? Were you falling on your head a lot?
1: (laughs) No, not too many concussions, fortunately. No, I actually, I worked for for one in uh, my undergraduate uh, days uh, at Queen's University in Canada, and I really liked him i really liked uh, you know the anatomy of the brain uh, and it sounded cool um and then that's why i went to columbia they had a very good neurosurgery program mm-hmm. however when i got there you know for medicine you have to love what you do you can't just like it because it's not something where you can kind of it's it's very difficult to change uh change your field in the middle of things and so i liked neurosurgery i worked for the neurosurgery lab my first year I didn't love it enough, you know. And a lot of the people I worked with, they weren't the happiest people in the hospital. They're, you know, a lot of personal relationship issues, and they're always in the hospital, not very, you know, not very happy. And so I, mm. and I, I still like surgery because I like I like to be able to fix things. That's sort of one of the things that a lot of surgeons do is we find a problem and try to do our best to fix
0: it. So brain surgeons are unhappy people. <laughs>
1: well, at least
0: the, the ones that
1: I trained with were, you know, they they were.
0: That's not good
1: to hear. Well, I'm not not too happy. The other thing too is that at Columbia they were also very very specialized, and so I liked to, the one I the warden I worked for. He did a little bit of everything, and uh, I kind of liked to, the idea of doing a little bit of everything. But I wasn't too attracted to doing very a very focused field within neurosurgery. So I kind of I eliminated that, and then I was exposed to actually the reason I got into facial plastic surgery is I was as a medical student I saw a nose surgery done. Uh, on the Upper East Side, and it was a, it was kind of an eye-opening experience for me. It was it was a young girl who was very attractive, except her nose just didn't fit her face. Mm-hmm. And I got to see the surgery done, and what I liked about the facial plastic surgery and the and nose surgery is that you could see the end of surgery, you could see your result. Now, it was still a little puffy, and it would get better, but the, do- the surgeon that I watched, he was able to make this person's face fit together, so to speak. It just, wow. Everything looked, it looked natural, didn't look overdone, but it brought everything back into balance. And that's, uh, that kind of fit my personality. I'm not a very good delayed gratification person, so. <laughs> me neither. I can, do is I, I can see what I've done when I, you know, pretty much by the time I finish.
0: Yeah. No, that's awesome. And I would imagine too, that the facial plastics was exciting. And you could tell me if you experienced any of that, you know, when you were watching other surgeons for actual reconstructive, like from an accident or something traumatic
1: yes no in residency actually i was in the midwest at university of iowa and we did a lot of facial trauma you know the university of iowa the the reason i went there from new york city is that in new york there's a lot of competition between institutions like columbia cornell nyu you know albert einstein but you know so what happens is you end up becoming good in a number of areas but you know most departments aren't great in everything Mm -hmm. in iowa there was no competition so we we got all the facial trauma for the state. We would get it also flown in from from Illinois, Minnesota, and sometimes even Nebraska and, and Missouri. Wow. And uh, so what was really interesting with facial trauma is it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You know, someone comes in and everything, is, you know, especially if it's a bad car accidents or motorcycle accidents, and it just looks, not to sound blunt, like hamburger. And, and you have to figure out, okay, well, well, like Humpty Dumpty, I guess is a good way You'd have to figure you know, how to put the pieces back together, so that you can bring you know bring somebody's face back to looking normal.
0: Gosh, Ooh. I mean it's it's bad to make fun of it, but I remember that Mr. Potato Head toy that I had. Is it like that? <laughs> put the oh, nose no, but, here. Uh, put the ear in that in that slot.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, sometimes it was actually some some of the bad accidents we saw. Yeah, there was reattach know, the next- an ear. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did have that. So.
0: Yowzers. Well, so what you do is obviously valuable in so many different ways for people who have experienced trauma from an accident or something, as well as people who just want to bring their their faces back into balance or their you know the entire from the neck up, I guess. So I'm curious. When you and I spoke offline, you said that there's there's a big difference in all the different types of people who who do this type of surgery. There's there's a general plastic surgeon. There's Someone like you who's a facial plastic surgeon. what are all these different surgeons and, and what are the differences?
1: Yeah, that, that's it's a very good question. You know, and it's I, I sort of compare it a little bit to fraternities where everybody thinks their fraternity is better than the other one. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, you know, it, it all has to do with kind of fear of competition. And so, you know, what we've seen, you know, as healthcare has been changing is more and more people are entering what I call the realm of cosmetic treatments. And so just to break down the main categories you know is there is the general plastic surgeon and they're generally board certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery and their area and they may focus within the field in a certain area but generally what they they're certified or qualified to take care of is craniofacial cosmetic surgery of the face breast surgery you know both cosmetic and reconstructive burn surgery uh, and hand surgery um, facial plastic reconstructive surgery is exactly what it sounds. We're qualified to take care of anything from the collarbone up. Um, and then there is this sort of a vague term called cosmetic surgeon, and that traditionally that encompasses people that maybe started with oral surgery, uh, sort of went to dental school, then did oral uh, maxillofacial training, huh. and they can work on the bones of the face, and then they decided to. Pursue training in more of that cosmetic surgeries, although it also includes not only the face but body, so breast surgery, you know, uh, thighs, arms, tummy. Tucks oh wow!
0: Things. So um, you don't do any of that?
1: I I chose not to. You know, for me, I got into facial plastic surgery because I I like the face. I like to see what I did, and actually at Columbia at the time, the plastic surgery program wasn't that busy, so I didn't get to see much exposure. To other parts of the body but the face was what really challenged me because it's it's delicate you can't hide the face right you know so you have to what i tell patients is that it forces me to become better at what i do because even if it's you know it's not a not the result i want i have to look at it every time i see the patient and figure out
0: (laughs) and be like sorry oops (laughs) Oops. (laughs) which i know you probably don't do often
1: No, but but you have to you have to look at and say, okay, well, what what would I do the next time so that I see see a better result?
0: Right. No, I love that idea of why you specialized with the face. It's true. It's like if if somebody goes to what you termed the cosmetic surgeon, this like vague term and they get some, I don't know, some cellulite work done and, you know, it's like they're going to have pants on. So you can't see if it's really working or not and they could pretend like it is, you know Anyway, so I want to know so these distinctions between these different types of surgeons Why is it so important for us to know this? Why how is it going to help us?
1: Well, I think what it does is it helps you I guess it helps you categorize what who you want to see now. I always tell patients is that just because you're in a certain specialty you know facial plastic surgery you know, doesn't mean that a general plastic surgeon or a cosmetic surgeon can't be as good or better than a facial plastic surgeon but what it tends to mean to me is it means that i've decided i just want to focus on a, a small area to try to become as good as i can mm-hmm. and, and what i have found is that the more you know the more you realize you really don't know everything and so i'm not going back to what i said earlier about being a general a general neurosurgeon doing a bit of everything you know, that was kind of naive at the time because, like I said, even in the face, I find that, you know, you can specialize within certain parts of, of the face. So to think that I could be excellent at the face, the body, the arms, I'm sure people are very good at all of those things, but I just find it hard to be an expert at everything. Yeah. Definitely. I don't like the concept of a specialist athlete compared to a decathlete.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I love that idea. So, with all the great doctors out there, and then let's say somebody you know has an idea of what they want to have done, and they so they then know which category to go to. uh, What kind of questions should they ask of a potential provider so that they know that that person's the right fit?
1: Well, I think it's you know some people have compared finding a doctor to almost like. you know, online dating or, 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 or even just, you know, getting into a relationship. You know, <laughs> yes. I mean you want to look and, and look at sort of paper credentials. You know, did they go to a, a you know a good medical school or did they go to did they have a good residency program? You know, are they board certified in the area that they practice? I think that's something that's doesn't mean again that you're not a good surgeon if you're not, but it just mm-hmm. means that you've decided to take that step to prove yeah. that you've
0: has old. a patient ever divorced you?
1: <laughs> ever divorced? Well, yeah. I'd, li- I'd be lying if I said I've I've, I've never had a patient that uh, ha-
0: has uh,
1: gone somewhere else. But it's actually pretty, you know, it's it's few and far between. But mm-hmm. well, back to your question, you know, so you know, you want to look at the paper credentials of a doctor. I think the important thing is to actually talk to the physician. You know, to, when you go in there, are they listening to co- your concerns, or do, have they come up with a list of their own suggestions and kind of by, you know, telling you what they think rather than listening to you. Mm -hmm. Do you get a sense of kind of trust with them? Do you trust that they're doing the right thing for you? Do you you kind of get a sense that if there's a problem, they'll be there for you? Or will they try to hide behind somebody else? Um, And then the other thing I always like, if possible, you know, to look at both before and after uh, pictures of actual patients of the surgeon and ideally, and we have this service available for patients that are interested, is to either speak uh, or talk to a patient that, uh, you know, has gone through something similar so you can get at least their perspective of what what their experience was.
0: That's fantastic. How do you, How do you provide that? You just offer or patients can- say, I'll be that referral for you.
1: Yes, actually, that's true. We've had patients where... That may not want to show their pictures in our photo book, but they said, you know, if patients have questions, I'd be more than happy to talk to anyone with concerns and let them know what you know, my experience has been.
0: That's so great. Because it's yeah. like somebody who's actually been going to you for a while and they can give their their over the long term experience, not like a one time consult or something. What? Yeah. And that's that's definitely a great tool or tactic, I guess, to get people to get that idea that, hey, I'm not here to mess with you. I'm not here to just make money off of you. I'm here because I care about doing a great job and I want to build a relationship with you.
1: Yeah. And I think you know, part of that was, uh, you know, the, the fellow I trained under up at Stanford, you know, his biz, uh, his practice was almost all referral from other patients. And he wasn't interested in just selling people something. He wanted you know, a long-term relationship. And that's what we look for with our patients.
0: So you just made a good point of, you know, some of those people out there who are just looking to sell services. So that made me think of, and, and I'm not putting anyone down by saying this, but it made me think of the flashy signs that I see sometimes for like medical spas and stuff like that. What should people look for? Should they be concerned with those or what?
1: You know, the medical spa, just like a physician, there are good medical spas, there are bad medical spas, and unfortunately, you know, as I mentioned, is that the, these are becoming more and more of a, a theme and that there are, you know, for-profit spas that are there because there's, um, you know, money in cosmetic services. Now, the problem with medical spas is that there needs to be a medical director. These can't operate independently without some type of physician.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, now, California... I'm not sure about the other states, but California doesn't specify what the training of a, of a medical spa director is. So it could be an internal medicine doctor, it could be an obstetrics gynecologist, it could be
0: a vet, a veter- <laughs> well,
1: not a veterinarian, but uh, although that could be down the road. Um, that would be sad. It needs to be somebody with a medical license. And you know the definition is that they need to be able to perform any of the services, but they don't have to. And so that's the, the problem is that a mm. lot of these directors, there are doctors who maybe have never done any of their treatments, but they're there to try to generate money.
0: Wow. So, so when, when you go into a medical spa, if someone out there li- is listening and they're like, oh, you know, I know about this medical spa down the street. And I was thinking about going in there and getting some, some Botox or something. What should they ask? What should they look for? What should they expect?
1: Well, what I would say is, I would expect the same from a medical spa provider, and usually they're registered nurses, which is perfectly fine, and I trained with one who was as good an injector as as the surgeon I trained under. Um, The problem is that not everyone has the same experience or training, and that's the same for nurses as it is for physicians. What I would say is you'd want to have the same sort of feeling that you can trust this person, they're listening to you, they're not pushing a service on you, they're telling them what they want. And you get a sense that they've done this before, you know. And then that's a that's a very difficult thing sometimes to get a feel for. Is, you know, have they done this? Is it, are you their first or second patient? Do they kind of know what, you know, what to expect or in terms of your outcome? Do they know about complications and what to do if they were to see one? Um, you know, and and that you know, like I said, nurses can can be excellent at that. However, some of these medical spas again if their focus is primarily on on profit or, or monetary reimbursement then they will hire n- nurses that are you know out of training and teach them a few tricks and then let them go to work wow. and what i realized with the non-invasive treatments that i do is that you're always learning you know you can learn you know and it helps to have good teachers i had a very good teacher who'd been doing you know injections and botox for 20 something years before i trained with him and And so he was able to fine-tune his technique, and I took advantage of that. But even since training with him, you know, in the ten years or so I've been out of, you know, in my own practice, is that I'm always, you know, changing things, and and that's the thing is you'd want someone that's had experience, and knows not they don't know one tool. There's a a saying that we have in surgery that if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, and unfortunately. (laughs) patients aren't nails, you know, that they, they may not require the same thing each time.
0: <laughs> Some of them out there might look that way, though, <laughs> if they're not going to a doctor who has a, a full, a fully grown tool set, you know, exactly. So what are you seeing as far as the trends are concerned? You know, what are most people coming to you to have done?
1: You know, it's we, we go through phases, you know, just like I think everything, you know, in, in out there um, in terms of what people want. But I'd say... The trend these days is that people want less recovery if possible, you know, so they're looking for things that they could get done in an afternoon and maybe go back to work in, in the morning or, you know, in after the weekend. So, you know, we, we do a lot of the non-invasive, you know, Botox-type injections. We do filler injections like Restylane or Juvederm, but and we also do some non-aggressive laser treatments as well, like... Uh, um, IPL, or we have another machine called the Spectra, which helps with skin quality. I think other trends that are, are becoming very popular is something called microneedling, which we don't have at the office yet. It's something we've been looking at, uh, which is a co- we call a collagen stimulating procedure. But basically, mm. what people want, especially younger patients, is they don't want that much time off if they can help it. They want to, we're kind of live in the instant gratification world where they want it now and and they want to go out right. And they, have something done at lunch and then go out to dinner that evening.
0: Totally. Well, I want to get into some of those areas specifically, like you mentioned Botox, and then you mentioned some fillers and all of this IPL, all of that. But before we get there, I'm kind of curious as to, you know, the makeup of your patients. You mentioned that there are some younger people coming in, you know, and to, I guess there's a lot of people out there listening who would just assume that it's like the older woman who's getting her, her facelift done. You know, I want to know more about your patient base.
1: Sure. Well, like I mentioned, we do have quite a range. We have people, you know, as young as kind of late 20s, all the way up into I have several patients in their 80s that I take care of. Wow. And and so I think you know one of the things that's made cosmetic procedures popular to the younger crowd, you know, are the Kardashians. You know, they're you know pretty vocal about uh, you know the taking care of themselves and their appearance, and and so I think that sort of opened the eyes to some of the younger people that yes, you can start early now. Uh, as I mentioned, when picking a surgeon or any sort of cosmetic providers, you want to get a sense though that they're not they're not just trying to make money off you. And that mm-hmm. if it's something that's not going to help you, they're not going to do it just to do it.
0: Right. That's horrible that they would do something, especially on a younger person who doesn't need it done. You know, it's like you've heard those stories where like Michael Jackson would insist that he have another nose job done. And they're like, um, I'm not sure this is a good idea, Michael. Like your nose may fall off. You know what I mean? And like he kept going. He's like insisting and they'll just do it anyway.
1: Yeah, it's, it's tough because I mean, that's a challenge for I have, I have that challenge all the time where you can see a problem. And you know, you're as as a surgeon. At least my instinct is, you want to help someone. You want to, if there's a problem, you want to try to fix it. And perhaps your ego thinks, well, maybe I'll be better than the last person. Right? Yeah. I'll be the one that fixes it and makes everybody happy. The problem is, you always have to weigh the possible benefit of a surgery or a procedure against the possible risk or disadvantage of doing something. And so, for me, if the risk or or the, the lack of benefit is not is is high that I'm not going to recommend something. right? Now, again, what I want is not someone just to come in, spend money, and leave. I want somebody to, to kind of join our family and be with us in, for the long term.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the, these uh, injectables, the non-invasive stuff that you said is pretty popular um, as a result of it being part of society and culture, so to speak. With regard to Botox, like for the people who may not even know what it is, tell us what it is and, and what it achieves.
1: Sure. So there, with Botox, that's the most popular brand, but there there are actually four uh, chemicals out there, although most people use two or three of them. There's Botox, there's something called Dysport, there's something called Zeomin, and then there's something called Myoblock. Now, not to get too too technical, but all of them are made up of botulinum toxin type A, with the exception of Myoblock, which is type B. Um, Basically, what botulinum toxin does is when you inject it into an area, it blocks the signal from a nerve that tells the muscle to contract or make movement. And you can use this botulinum toxin for any muscle uh, that moves more than you'd like it to. We use it functionally for people with migraines, people with muscle spasms or, or, or spasticity even people for swallowing problems or or problems with bladder uh, issues.
0: Wow. So it has practical uses as well as if you just want to look nice.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's it's used, and that's actually, we found it cosmetically by sort of happenstance in that there was an ophthalmologist up in Vancouver that was using it for patients for eye spasms, and what they found is one of the side effects from injecting the muscles for eye spasm is that it made the wrinkles of the, the frown lines get better.
0: Wow. Is that guy rich now or what? Oh, well, I think
1: that it's a husband and wife team, and they, they, I think they do pretty well for themselves. So.
0: <laughs> so this, so the idea of making the muscles stop contracting, which then creates this like smoother look, why would somebody who's already young, you know, you mentioned the Kardashians and all of that, Jazz, want to have this done? What's the purpose of having it done so young when you don't have any wrinkles?
1: It's a good question. The, 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 the same uh, husband-wife team that I mentioned earlier, they they had a study. In 2006, I believe, where they, the, the surgeon, he had two patients that were identical twin sisters, and one of them had been getting Botox ten years longer than the other sister. And what he did is he took pictures of of the girls' foreheads, their forehead lines, um, both before they had Botox and a month after, where things started looking really good. And what he found is that although the Botox looked or the patients looked better after Botox, the one that had been getting it for ten years longer looked better both before as well as after and so he sort of used that result to to draw the conclusion that not only does botox sort of turn back the clock a little bit but in some in in certain situations it may actually stop the clock from ticking
0: wow So
1: how he called it more of a preventative as well and that's where i think where we look at some of these patients in their late 20s or even early 30s with frown lines is that they want to treat the area before the lines become deep and etched in like their parents. Mm
0: -hmm. So the people out there listening who are well into their 40s and 50s are probably like, crap, (laughs) this is going to be tough. But you can start at any age though, right? Yes.
1: Now, when it says, when you read the disclaimers, like you'll see with any drug commercial on television, is they talk about it being treated uh, or, or for use in patients up to 65 years old. And so the fellow I trained with, he he was older than 65 and he was using it. And what he would tell patients is that when a drug goes, goes into what we call the FDA approval process to be able to be used on people, is they have to pick a certain age range of their study patients. And so Botox, they decided we wanted to stop at 65 just because we wanted to get approved. We didn't want to take any chances. So that's why the fine print says up to 65. However, we use it very frequently in patients over
0: 65. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess maybe they said 65, because by the time you're 65, what's the point?
1: (laughs) That's that's how I look at it. Maybe 20 years ago, that was true. But nowadays, what we're finding is not only are we living longer, but we're also living better for a longer period of time. Hmm. A lot of people who are, you know, 65 and older, who, you know, maybe they've had a significant other pass away, or they've gone through a, a divorce, and they're looking to you know, to, to find a you know, to enter a new relationship and they don't want to look tired or or, right. or done or, you know, even just to get a new job or to keep their job.
0: Yeah. Now, I joke, but that's actually such a great point. It's it really could impact somebody's uh, sense of self-worth, self-confidence that just makes you feel good about yourself.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of actual a lot of research in the psychology or in the field of psychology where your self-esteem is intimately tied into the way you look, you know, what you see in the mirror. And I've seen that in my own patients, is that when you look in the mirror and you see someone looking back at you that looks tired and old, and it's not the way that you feel inside, then it it hurts your self-esteem and your confidence. Mm -hmm. But if you can match the inside with the outside, you know, it improves your mood, improves your confidence, and then it actually improves the way people treat you.
0: Totally. It's interesting, and it's terrible that we judge each other based on whether or not we look tired or we look younger or any of that. But it it is a fact of life.
1: Well, we're visual people, and that's the thing. We we judge by what we see. And yeah. It's, it, it may not be an ideal situation, but it is the reality. It is the
0: way it is. So what about fillers? I'm curious about why all these women are, are getting their lips so overdone.
1: Yeah, well, you know... We, we, Again, going back to who's do, who who does it, it, there's the problem with with aesthetic or cosmetic procedures, is that the what we call the endpoint or when to stop is a very gray area. You know, it, it, we talk about beauty being in the eye of the beholder, mm-hmm. and it you know the part of it is what the patient sees, but a lot of it's what the provider sees. You know, what does the provider think a good lip looks like,
0: mm.
1: and and that's the thing is that, you know, a lot of people will see with big lips, it's not the technique, it's not the filler that's the problem, it's that the technique is overdone. You know, we're not stopping you. Know, and, and bigger isn't always better. You know, it's something right. that can give what we do a little bit of a bad reputation.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm actually on this uh, dating app called Bumble right now, and m- many of the guys have in their profiles... Um, what's with all the girls with the lips? If you have fake lips, swipe left. (laughs) And I'm just like, hmm, okay. I wonder what that's all about. I guess they don't like the big lips. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, what I would say is the good lips are, the the people that have had good work, very few people would be able to tell. Yeah. You know, you don't walk around with a before picture that people can then compare that with the way you look now and say, oh, I see what was done.
0: Mm-hmm. And also, it goes away, right? I mean, fillers are temporary, right? Yes, Botox fillers,
1: you know, the, the duration depends, again, on how much is how much is put in, the type of product that's done, and a little bit on the person as well. But most fillers for the lips will wear off uh, between somewhere between 6 to 12 months. Botox generally wears off between three and a half to 6 months, depending, again, on the dose and the person. Mm-hmm. So the thing that is nice for most, in most cases... If you're not happy with what was done, if you wait just like a bad haircut, it will get better.
0: (laughs) But is there an option to also have it permanently done? Let's say that you've been doing the temporary thing for a long time and it looks good. You like it. You want to just kind of, I don't know, just do it. Just go for it.
1: You know, there are, you know, in terms of fillers and especially lips, there are permanent fillers um, I'm in the I guess in the past there were a lot uh, fewer regulations with permanent fillers. but the problem with a permanent filler is it's truly permanent and unlike an implant like a breast implant or a chin or cheek implant, if there's a problem with it, those are easy to take out. but filler it's put in with you know, with a needle or a canyon little droplets and so if there's a problem, your body reacts to it and we may not see a reaction for 10 years or 15 mm. years. 30 years down the road that your body reacts to it, is to undo or to, to correct a reaction to a permanent filler, you have to cut the filler out Ugh. and destructive and, and make you look worse than, than the, just leaving it in there. Oh, man. Well, so, so personally, I, I don't use per, uh, permanent fillers, although there are uh, two that are approved for use in the United States, uh, just because I never know what can happen
0: years down the road. Mm-hmm. And fillers aren't just for the lips, right? No, they're
1: for, basically fillers fill. And so any area where you have a little uh, volume loss, and that unfortunately happens throughout the face and actually body as we get older, is a filler, that, you know, you can use a filler to fill that area back up or to add volume.
0: Mm. Yeah, I always used to make this comment about like, um, that girl has like a baby face. You know, it's like when you just like look more plump when you're in your 20s. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then when you get older, you know that you're getting older because your cheeks, you start actually having some cheekbones.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, unfortunately, you know, when it comes to cosmetic treatments, you know, is that we're, we continually change the way we, we understand how, you know, what it is to get older, you know, what changes, why do we look older now? Or, you know, at 40, why do we look older than we did at 20 or 30? And it's not just, you know, loss of volume is a very important component of it, but it's also the change in the skin from being exposed to sun. Mm. It's also a change in the skeleton. The skeleton actually shrinks. And I was telling a patient today it's like buying a suit and having the hanger shrink oh The, the suit starts hanging off the hanger and so, you know, that's something that we have to think about when we're trying to rejuvenate the face as well.
0: Oh, my gosh. That just made me feel bad about myself because I, I had to take my microphone down a couple notches. Like I feel like I've lost an, an inch of height in the past week. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm jogging too much. I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, so you also mentioned surgery. Um, you mentioned like laser treatments, like other non-invasive stuff that tends to be common in your office. Tell us more about those.
1: So in terms of lasers, you know, there's hundreds of different laser devices. And so there, there are different categories of lasers depending on what you want to achieve. Um, you know, we have uh, several minimally invasive lasers or light devices where what we're trying to do is address uh, discoloration of the skin. So brown spots like sunspots, freckling, uh, redness or blood vessels like people get with rosacea and, you know, skin uh Quality, texture, that sort of thing. We also can use them for treating acne, uh, melasma, which is an unusual uh, darkening or or hyperpigmentation around the cheeks and forehead that some people get. Hmm. Um, So the non-invasive, what I tell patients is that you generally get what you put into something. So if you have something that has a minimal recovery, you know certainly you can see differences with one treatment, but generally they're designed as a series. So each time you see a little bit more Mm -hmm. of them.
0: What about those uh, facelifts? Like when people like I remember as a kid, I remember one of my history teachers had a facelift, and you could actually see the stitches like around the ears in the you know. And so I'm wondering, is that still done that way? Well,
1: what I would say with facelifting, a lot of just like any technique in surgery is that we are always trying to improve things, you know improve upon what was done in the past. And so in terms of facelifts, you know that's the most common surgery that I do. Um, And actually this week was extremely busy with with surgery. But we do use the ear to hide things. Um, You know, there there have been changes in the way that people make the incisions around the ear. Generally what I try to do is hide in the natural curves and shadows around the ear and hairline. Mm. Um, But, you know, you certainly, and I've seen quite a few bad incisions where they're either put in the wrong place or they've just not healed very well. Um, but we do use ear to camouflage because what we're doing with a face and neck lift is we're trying to lift the muscle that sort of dropped or sagged as we get older that sort of supports the face, mm-hmm. the, the jowls. I
0: was just going to say, the, if you're getting those jowls, is the thing to do. Like you, you shouldn't do facial rejuvenation, but instead go get a facelift. Yeah, you know, what, what
1: I tell patients is that because this is all cosmetic, it's nothing that you need. You know, it's not something that's saving your life, although it may make your life, know the quality of life better. They're not that there's a right answer, wrong answer. You know, what I try to do, you know, when a patient comes in and asks me questions is say, well, what, you know, what bothers you? And mm-hmm. they, if they tell me, well, I just look in the mirror and I grab the side of my face and I just pull back and I think if I could just do that, I'd be happy. Well, that's basically you're simulating a face and neck lift. If they come in, they say, well, I don't like my wrinkles when I frown or, or I don't like, uh, you know the 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 my forehead lines when i lift my eyebrows up you know then that's more of a botox treatment to soften the muscle movement or if they say well i don't like my nasolabial folds along the side of my nose uh you know down towards my lip or my my uh we call them the marionette lines but along the corner of the mouth hmm. um you know then that's a, an area that may need volume you were hmm. to, to restore So filler tell me but when it comes to sagging necks you know, there's really, in my opinion, um, there's not really an effective non-invasive treatment out there. There's certainly lots of them that are offered. I just don't find them as effective as surgery. And surgery, even though it may sound scary to patients, if it's done well, can actually be a pretty, uh, I don't say minimal recovery, because is, there is time to, to get better. But it's, I would say it's a much less uh, difficult recovery than most people would think.
0: Hmm, that's good to know. Yeah, because the thought of surgery like freaks me out. I, you know, I'm sure it freaks a lot of people out. They're like, Ooh, I don't know about that. I'm not cutting anything. But it sounds like it's if it's done by the right person and you spend enough time getting educated on how it's going to be done and just you know feel comfortable with your physician, then it's fine because it'll get the results that you're looking for. Yeah,
1: and I think I mean with surgery especially, but you know, it's I, I kind of compare not to sound. Uh, egotistical, but it's a bit like being an athlete in that you can know what to do, but you have to be able to do what you know as well, so you can't just say, well, I know how to, you know, to, to swing a baseball bat, you have to be able to do it, you have to perform, and what's similar with sports as well as surgery is that you get better by repetition, you know, doing it again and again and again and fine-tuning things, you know, your technique, and so that's why it's important to have someone who's experienced, because mm-hmm. You can know again know the theory and know what I should be doing but if you can't actually execute the theory then patients aren't going to be happy
0: so I mentioned that we were going to talk about you know all those at-home gadgets like I'm sure people want to try to do their own little facial tightening at home or whatever else is out there I'm sure you could buy over the counter so to speak you know things to make your skin look better you know the facial rejuvie kind of thing what is your take on all of those
1: you know, what, what I would say is that when it comes to devices, so the at-home laser devices are, are a little bit different than the at-home facials and skincare. You know, t- just briefly on skincare, you know that's a, a multi-billion-dollar industry, and the regulation is not the same as for medications. It, you know, so when it comes to cosmetics or nutritional supplements, you know they don't have to. A lot of them don't have to prove what they say. They have to prove that they're safe. You know, they're not going to give you cancer or or make something worse but they don't have to prove that they you know make wrinkles disappear or or, or, or you know, back up any of their statements. So what happens with a lot of them is that they're safe they may help a little bit but they're basically designed to generate money for the companies that produce them. Wow. Uh, so it, but with laser devices you know what they basically have done and there's laser uh, laser uh, hair removal systems that you Right.
0: Like yes. I bought one and it hurts like hell. I'm never doing that again.
1: Yeah, you know what, what and, and they work basically. What they are, they're sort of what I call depowered device uh, versions of the devices we have in the office. You know, and so what what these laser companies want is they want people to buy them, but they don't want problems. And so with laser, you get what you put into it, just like anything else. And so sometimes you need to give more energy to destroy a hair follicle and and, and lose the hair. But what, pay, what these companies don't want is they don't want people buying the devices then scarring themselves or mm. burning themselves having problems. And so generally, they tend to have less power than what you can use in the office just because they don't want to have you know class action suit or a number of products.
0: Right. <laughs> so it sounds like it might be a waste of your money. You should just go to the real physician's office and get it done right. That's what it sounds like to me. You know,
1: I, I would say you're probably going to get a more effective treatment, at least get a I would say a better understanding of what the treatment's going to be doing than buying something, you know, that you see on television. Yeah.
0: yeah. It sounds like in general you should just go to the physician, ask questions, get to know them, what their specialties are, how many of whatever they've done, whether it's non invasive or actual, you know, more invasive surgeries, find out how long they've been doing it, all that kind of stuff. Just getting yourself educated, right?
1: Yeah, I, I would say yes. And I also would say, right, I tell patients, you know, one of the things that I like them to do is what I call the wince test. So if I'm exp- telling you what I want to do and you kind of wince, it doesn't sound, you're you almost, you're kind of like not sure why they're suggesting it or you're afraid to fr- afraid that there is recommendation, then it may not be the right thing to do. Right. So I to explain why I'm doing things because a lot of what we do is very logical. And so if you understand why I'm doing it, Hopefully you agree with me, but at least you kind of develop a sense that I, I hopefully know what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> well, I certainly have gotten the sense that you know what you're talking about. So before we close, I'd love to ask you, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners um, or resources that you want to suggest, anything along those lines? Uh,
1: you know, I, I would say in terms of resources, the you know, internet's a wonderful a wonderful source of information. The problem is trying to being able to filter the scare t- scare stories or the horror stories from something that's useful. You know, one one website where I've answered a lot of a number of questions from patients is something called realself.com. I don't uh, have any uh, financial arrangement with them, mm-hmm. but that is a certainly a useful uh, useful forum for potential patients to try to find out more information. Hmm. Um, that's great. You know, I would say that's that's probably where I would start and you know just uh, look online for doctors in your area try to find out uh, you know their you know their background see if they have something or offer something that you're interested in but you know as Michelle mentioned you know go and talk to them you know or talk to you know talk, talk to talk to them get a sense of you know are they listening to you do they know what they're talking about and do you feel safe and trust them
0: mm-hmm And so where are you located, Dr. Vipon, for for the people in the Los Angeles area?
1: I'm located in Claremont, just uh, south of the 210 and just north of the 10 freeways, uh, um, about two or three miles east of the 57. Mm -hmm.
0: And I love what you say on your website. It says, you don't have to go to Beverly Hills to get a great facial plastic surgeon.
1: (laughs) Uh, And I'd say that's true. You know, people, I have a number of colleagues that work in Beverly Hills, and they go there just because they think that the zip code will bring in patience but you know for me i just didn't want to I, I commute far enough that i don't want to commute all the way down to beverly hills and often because of of where they're located the uh, cost is is a lot higher over there because they're you know their overhead is higher oh, computer- sure. people so for me i'm happy where i am i like i'm in claremont and like i said i like the city quite a bit and you know, I'm, I'm quite busy doing what i do out here
0: Awesome. I love it so much. I'm so glad that you took time to share all of this really, really valuable information for people who might be considering any of these types of procedures. And I encourage everybody out there listening to go to vipfacialartistry.com or drvipon.com to reach out, um, especially if you're local here to LA. And uh, thank you so much once again, Dr. Vipon. It
1: was my pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for having me.
0: Coming up next week on Nothing Off Limits, we're going to continue the health and wellness focus by talking about cancer and how stress plays a role. I'm looking forward to next week. And until next time, thanks so much for continuing to listen to Nothing Off Limits. Please visit us at ladyfoxentertainment.com. Send me a little note. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.